Welcome to Anger Management. My name is Georg Dietz. I'm Karin Pettersson. And as usual, we're here to uh, argue with each other, actually. Um, if Karin is finishing her, she's doing something with the computer, actually. But um, we, um, as, as usual, we talk about the future of democracy with the people that we think uh, are on the forefront of ideas. And this week, for Karin... Yes, big week. Big week. Big week, we talked to economist, political economist... World-leading thinker. That's what you. S- I we all we, we tend to overuse that phrase, perhaps, but in this case, all, it's actually true. It's all true. world-leading thinkers. Yeah. So basically. anyway, we met with Daron Ajemulu. Yeah. He's a economist at MIT, professor, expert, and a true superstar. True superstar, yeah. uh, beloved by his peers, and also has written a blockbuster book called Why Nations Fail that many of you, I'm sure, have read. Yeah, that came out in 2012, and then he started a Tumblr that made him even more popular. Because he was uh, funny. Was Economists funny. are almost never funny. Yeah, so he is funny, he is smart. People warned us that he's uh, one of the he's... most intelligent people on earth. Yeah, but, we were uh, not faced by that. <laughs> <laughs> as usually, we weren't faced by that. And also, as is so often the case with intelligent people, I think, they're just also super, super, super nice. nice. Yeah. Super nice. Um, so he was... Uh, very, very friendly. He had an hour um, in his office at MIT overlooking the Charles River, which was uh, epic at that beautiful morning. <laughs> yes. But the, but the really interesting thing that you pointed out afterwards was they are lefties. They are all lefties now. And even the people who you think when you read their books and their papers that they are very mainstream or maybe leaning liberal in a European uh, usage of the word... When you talk to them in depth, they are more or less social democrats, aren't they all, Georg? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like me. <laughs> well, we had the discussion as usual in, in the in the with with Ajimoglu, um, but he 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 said he regretted not being for Bernie Sanders, while not 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 sort of being yes. more clearly for Bernie Sanders, while acknowledging. No, he said that, maybe it was a mistake. Yeah. To be fair. Yeah. Well. We'll 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 see how how yes. how that sort of plays out for the audience in the podcast. I think it was really interesting to hear him talk about um, his the sense of urgency that, that he has, so really really afraid about the moment. Yeah, um, and and comparing with the more positive tone and outlook he had in the book from 2012, it's a big change in kind of. How he describes the world, I think, this discussion we had with him this week and how a more optimistic take on things uh, from a few years back. And I also want to thank um, listeners of this podcast who have um, sent in questions, suggested questions via Twitter. We we, we, uh, can always do that. You can can always always uh, either address, uh, tweet us at uh, ab underscore Karin or... Uh, Georg Dietz one one uh, who's, who's zero who's Georg Dietz zero actually so please send in questions and we used several of your questions they were really good so thank you for that uh, interaction yes um, and with that with that I think um, take it away yeah good morning thank you Georg on this thank be- you. beautiful morning thank you, um, thank you for having us yeah it's uh I think it's a special time um, for for journalists and for economists and for um, people in, in in the public field um, to think about democracy. That's what we do here in this, in this podcast. Um, and I'm I'm wondering at the beginning somehow your uh, the Tumblr activities. 
seem to have stopped. What's what's happening? What's <laughs> well, you know, I uh, started writing a little more on like foreign policy and places like that uh, after, or actually, I started. I wrote an article for foreign policy before the election, and then followed up with another one after the election, and then I did a few uh, radio shows, partly because I was very worried about the direction that this country is going. And of course, the direction that the world is going is not necessarily better, but, but this country is, is, is really the, uh, is, is a sore spot for, for the future of democracy, really. And, but, but then I found that it's so all-consuming that mm. I took a little bit of time off, and now I'm working on some other things. But, uh, you know, you have to juggle the academic and uh, sort of the public... Uh, sort of exposition of both uh, academic research and, and political issues. But but I think these are also times that everybody needs to speak out. Could you explain, in a way, I mean, you're an economist of great achievement, but you're a public intellectual since the last few years, it seems, since the book, when How Nations well, Fail I, came Well, I, I think, I, I don't know whether public intellectual is a good word or a bad word. So, but it's a, it's I, a good word. It's a good word. Okay, um, all right. In the European well, think, context, it's a good yeah, word. Yeah, I think... I think uh, uh, I think it's a very uh, complicated thing because, you know, as academics, our first obligation is to do the research and the teaching, and I think that's what we are here for. But at some point, I think it also becomes a, a necessity and obligation to sort of s expose these things, expose these things for a wider world, and especially when there are urgent issues that uh, the public cares or should care about. I think it's important for academics to speak out about it. And, and, and the, the balance here is you have to do it either on the basis of the research so that you really are bringing some sort of expertise that, uh, that, that, you don't, that, that others don't have and that you do have. Or, you know, it should be fairly clear that you are doing so as a private citizen. And I think that balance is a difficult one. Uh, and, and I think in the current context, it's, 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 it's a difficult one for me also. Because I think when I see what's going on in, uh, uh, in the U.S. and I see what's going on to some degree also in the U.K., although much less, uh, you know, that there is, there is a large component of that that makes me very worried from the academic research I've done, but also I feel angered and uh, and frustrated as a private citizen. So that's the, the, that, the that balance is the difficult one. What is it then from your um, not as much as a private citizen, but from your research that worries you? Um, maybe going back to the um, the theme of your book also, mm -hmm. and if I read it correctly, uh, the thesis is that in the long run, uh, tyranny will not prevail. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Even though the argument is, much, is more complex, is that not... No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think I'm a hopeful person, so I, the book is written with the hope that tyranny right. will not prevail. <laughs> But there isn't anything in the book that says there isn't uh, the possibility that extractive institutions, tyranny, dictatorship, repression uh, will not prevail. <laughs> It's... You know, the book's main thesis is about the importance of institutions for yeah. economic performance. But but really, the center stage is about this interaction between economic and political institutions. And those interactions really bring their own logic to what can survive. So you can have 
uh, you know, terrible regimes like North Korea, uh, you know, like uh, you know, Mugabe's regime in in, in Zimbabwe, uh, or you know, Museveni's regime in in Uganda, they they have enormous staying power, and it's not even the case that, as we've seen with Chavez, you know. Uh, the the charismatic leader dies and then the regime collapses. So there is a lot of uh, persistence, endurance in these regimes because they have their own logic. They are enriching a group of people who are then willing to use force and all of their resources for the uh, for the continuation of their regime. And uh, so so I think even though we can be hopeful about challenges to these regimes, we have to be constantly worried about uh, these institutional paths taking us more and more in the direction of, away from democracy and towards personal rule, towards the rule by a small group of people that's kleptocratically sort of robbing the country and repressing other people. And, and we're seeing a lot of that around us. And I think what really makes me worried about the United States is that you know, you have a country that, you know, for better or worse, has, you know, uh, has been on the side of democracy, at least especially uh, over the last 20, 30 years, and, uh, and, 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 and has uh, built a, a complex of institutions that uh, are fairly respectful of free speech and minorities and, uh, and, uh, 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 and, and, and the rights of citizens in general. But but it's also quite a fragile balance, and and you now have probably the greatest challenge to these institutions, the biggest danger that I can I can see any time on the twentieth century, really. So, and what is the threat? Is it kleptocracy, or is it the rule no, of the? No, I think the, it's much more than kleptocracy. I mean, I think uh, I think demolishing can, of institutions. Exactly, yeah. it's the demolishing of institutions, and it's demolishing of the social norms that mm. uh, that surround these institutions. I think you know. Corrupt politicians are terrible. They really also destroy the fabric of institutions. But, you know, U.S. has had, you know, corrupt politicians at pretty high places in the past, not in the presidency, uh, in the kind of financial corruption. Uh, but, you know, with Nixon, uh, it had a, 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 a president willing to, you know, do illegal things for his own benefit. But but it has never had this sort of onslaught against the nature of institutions. So that's why I see Trump as much, much more dangerous than Nixon. Could we reflect on that sort of mindset maybe? Because I think, uh, first of all, I think the, the work that you do is so interesting for someone like me because it combines the economic foundations with the very concrete political sort of implications you. and statements. Um, but but the mindset, I think, is interesting to see how you approached uh, why nations fail, which is also not called how nations succeed, <laughs> by the way. So that's kind of interesting maybe to, to think about this, this situation. But so if, um, what happened between, I guess you started the book in 2009, 10, or, or thinking uh, about that? Eight, yeah, eight, around of, that, yeah. Uh, was that connected to the financial crisis then, so at that point? Or, or, or but it's more about optimism? I wish, or, I, were, I, I, wish um, I could have a, such a nice story. No, actually, <laughs> we we no, planned the book in but, you know, 2005. It okay. just took us three years to get started. But, but the, there's optimism in the book, and there's a confidence in the book that, that, that this is, in a way, how, um, yeah, how economic growth and, and stability will prevail. Yeah. Um, and you, you wrote a few papers, actually, in recent years of correcting some of the 
assumptions in the book, yeah. which is interesting. So could you re reflect on that to, to see where your urgency comes from now, so of where you come from as a... Well, I mean, I think the, the, book, the book is, is uh, you know, is limited in what it tries to do. We didn't try to sort of write everything, and then there are important things that we left out. Uh, I'll mention a few of them that are not perhaps exactly what you're driving at, but, but we were quite conscious in doing so. I mean, I think the most uh, important one, which I think has become probably a little bit more important since we wrote the book, is international relations. <laughs> you know, obviously institutions are in influenced by how different uh, nations uh, are interacting in the, in the international sphere. The other thing that we sort of didn't really delve so much into were all these social norms and uh, uh, and And, and sort of the uh, the informal part of the institutions that make democracy work. I mm. think that's very important, and we just did not have the space to go into it. But Things I like think trust, trust, and and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, and and respect yeah. for the uh, opposite point of view. Mm. You know, we uh, you know I've always thought that you know that's a centrally critically important thing that. You to make something like democracy, which is a very complex sort of political arrangement, mm -hmm. work. You need to have the forums and the disposition by people to listen to opposite points of view, and then sort of they may or may not change their mind. You don't need to change your mind, but at least you need to be able to give that forum to people and be able to listen to them. And, and, and again, that's part of the social norms. Mm -hmm. And that we're seeing that, for example, being eroded. So that actually brings me to the most important thing that, that in some sense the book was a book of its times. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the world was, uh, you know, witnessing in the 2000s and to some degree also in the 1990s, a, a very strong march of democracy. You had a uh, flourishing of democracies in many parts of the world. Africa had, uh, for the first time, uh, the emergence of, you know, stable functioning democracies. You know, there were a few like Mauritius and Botswana, but, you know, you had 10 essentially functioning democracies by the middle of the 2000s. You had the Arab Spring uh, sort of uh, breakout as we, we just finished the book. So, in fact, the preface of the book, which was written fully after the book was written, was sort of a reaction to the Arab Spring. Uh, you know, you had uh, the United States uh, sort of elect a, uh, an African-American president. And I think that's, you know, a small symbolism, but it's an important symbolism. Uh, but as important, you know, was the sort of the program that uh, Obama stood for, which, again, wasn't perfect, but, but really reflected some of the concerns about, you know, how to make... Uh, modern institutions, the modern economy, more sort of fair, more inclusive. So all of these, you know, gave us a euphoria, perhaps yeah. unwittingly made us sound more like that tyranny cannot prevail. Mm. But, but, but I think uh, there really isn't sort of, it's not, our theory is not one where there is an ultimate institution that everybody is going to converge to, everybody is going to be democratic, everybody is going to be inclusive. Hmm. I, I, wish, I wish the world still, was like what, that. What happened? So is it, I mean, was it built on false premises, this democratic illusion no, of, of 50, is it only 15 years, basically, that we talk about? It's a very, no, I don't think so. I think... And, and I think sort of the, the shock is now sort of to see um, or to understand why that fragility of... Um, 
democracies and and how 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 can it even even this country how can how fast yeah. can it can it turn from i mean all of a sudden russians are in the sort of oval office all the time and Assad is a partner and uh, and the turkish uh, security guards beat up kurdish protesters and yeah. well that that was happening even before trump unfortunately mm. but, yeah you know, but so if you feel uh, that this is a playground for authoritarians all of a sudden here and this sort of re- resonates obviously in the in the uh, rest of the world. Well, if, if well, let me let me try to give my imperfect answer to that. I think there are three huge problems for democracy in our modern day. One, I think, is a perennial problem, and we discuss it to some degree in the book, which is that you know democracy is about a particular distribution of political power and a particular way of resolving conflicts and there will always be powerful people who are against it because they're not having as much voice as they would like they're not able to use the their economic power in the way that they would desire and and they have the means to subvert democracy and we've seen that many times we've seen coups against democracy uh, you know some of those coups have entirely different uh, sources but 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 you uh, you 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 see the pattern and we discussed that to some degree the second is a is something that i hadn't really thought about uh, before uh, the recent events and i don't necessarily have a a very good way of uh, conceptualizing and understanding it yet, but but I think it's real, and that's where sort of the journalism comes in. And I think uh, you know, democracy has a soft spot, soft underbelly that hadn't been apparent before, and it is that a autocratic politician can undermine the institutions of democracy with the help of the media. Mm. And I think, you know, the way that we always thought in the book, and I think many people uh, before, is, you know, you know, you have democratic institutions and somebody may try to distort these democratic institutions, but then some sort of uh, civil society participation, media, etc., will bring this we'll out, yeah. will, and then that check mm. will motivate people mm. to say, no, stop it, and mm. that's the story, for example, we told how it happened in the U.S. when FDR tried to sort of pack the court and why it didn't happen in Argentina, etc. Mm. But what this sort of understated in some sense is how low information most voters are and uh, and then we thought, well, they are low information, but that's where where the media comes in, and then it can raise the red flags and say, look what the president is doing. But of course, there's the opposite. They are so low information that, and this is where my concern with what's going on with journalism, mm. media outlets and individual journalism, uh, journalists, sorry, who are uh, unscrupulous about the ethics of journalism and the ethics of democracy can do the exactly the opposite. They can lie and they can say, look, you know, uh, the president uh, or the prime minister is passing a decree in order to save you while at the same time jailing people. And, uh, and, and we've seen that play out in Russia. We've seen that play out in Venezuela. And perhaps most uh, sort of starkly, we've seen that play out in Turkey. You know, uh, there's, there are so many parallels uh, between, you know, Erdogan's sort of strategy and Trump's that, that really gives me sort of great fright. 
you know, Erdogan, uh, from the very early stages, understood that he could only rule by having his sort of media trolls. And that was a very, very conscious strategy from the early stages. And, and it really sort of created so much disinformation in, the, in, in Turkey that it made sort of the basics of democracy very difficult to function. Can I uh, just stay... Um, right. I have a third point. Yeah, I know, I know you have a third point. Can I just stay at the, on this point for uh, <laughs> briefly because um, we're obviously very interested in, in this. And I'm... So the way I'm, I'm thinking about this moment in terms of how this new, you can almost say, information infrastructure um, affects democracy or interplays with democracy is that I, I, I would argue that we have undervalued the... Or we haven't taken into account how different this world is now in terms of how people access information and how, and how kind of easy it is to distort and use propaganda and um, because of the internet and how um, it's been moving from open to closed and these platform companies are um, uh, monopolizing things mm-hmm. and it's easy for uh, for governments and parties and um, actors to use, to use this uh, in their favor. But I'm also wondering about, in the U.S. case, it's not only that there is um, a supply of this, this information, there's also a demand for this information. Yeah, so, and what is, that, what is that demand? Is that connected to inequality? Is it lack yeah, of that's education? My, that, that's exactly my third point. Okay. That, that, that's going to come. But I think, uh, I think it's, uh, I think there's always a demand. That demand is always there. Yeah. I think the demand has become stronger because of this third point that I'm going to make, but that demand is always there. And I think responsible journalism was sort of trying to resist totally giving in to that demand. Mm. And, you know, but, you know, it's, I don't want to paint a picture of sort of idyllic journalism before, you know, before the 2000s. I mean, if you look at the UK, for example, which I think has one of the best traditions of independent journalism, you also have the tabloids. And the tabloids, you know, the Daily Mail and the yeah. Daily Star always, you know, it's cater to that demand, sure. exactly. Mm. But but somehow, or the news of the world, even worse, mm. uh, but 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 somehow there was a hierarchy that, that, that it was sort of understood by a significant fraction of the population that you sort of read those things sometimes for entertainment, mm. but, you know, you really didn't trust them as much as the BBC or, you know, the Independent, the Guardian or the Times or, 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 or something like that. And I think that, that hierarchy has sort of collapsed. And I, I'm not, at some level, I'm not decrying that. I mean, it's good that you have open sure. entry into journalism. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't, I mean, but, but on the other hand, there is a sort of a, uh, there is a, there's an asymmetry here, like you know, when you when you go to the doctor, uh, you know, there is a you're going there to get medical advice because the doctor has an expertise. You're giving, you're placing your trust in his or her medical knowledge, and then the, there's also an ethical dimension. You know, the doctor takes the Hippocratical oath, and and if it behaves in a sort of an unethical way, you know, distorts the information, tries to manipulate you, etc., he can lose his license. And, and I think most people are pretty happy with that. I mean, you know, we sometimes say, oh, well, there's too many licensing re- requirements, et cetera. But it's a good thing that there is this sort of regulation on doctors, mm. but not on journalists. And 
you know, uh, we can't, you know, if, if, if you started telling total lies and manipulating people, we can't take your license away and say, no, from now on, you're not going to speak. And, and, and I can see why that's, we wouldn't want to do that, but it also creates this, this, this real sort of marketplace for disinformation and as the resources that can benefit from that disinformation increase. I think it really is is, is 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 creating a chaotic environment that I don't actually know how to how we're going to fully resolve. But coming to to to, to, to the to the third leg of this, and this is what you know, what I tried to write essentially in this uh, foreign policy article before the election, which was written with the with the full certainty that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And, and the point that I was trying to make in the article is that there are real grievances and 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 that that, that a democratic presidency Hillary Clinton Clinton's and I shouldn't have to say democratic Hillary Clinton's presidency is not really on a path to sort of tackle and recognize these grievances and and I see two major grievances and I think they are rather international global in nature meaning that you're, we're seeing them in the UK, we're seeing them in France, we're certainly seeing them in the United States. And and those two grievances come together in a very dangerous, noxious potion for the future of democracy. The first one is economic in nature, that we've had enormous progress in terms of technological change and enormous advances in terms of globalizing the world economy, which is which has great promise for both the less less developed countries that have now have access to Western markets and for Western countries to be able to sort of form more complex production supply chains. But we have not recognized and we have essentially uh, being asleep at the wheel in seeing that this process doesn't benefit everybody and it has brought a lot of displacement, a lot of hardship for millions, millions of people in the United States, in the UK, in France, in other parts of Europe. <laughs> and, 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 and both experts uh, and like economists, uh, politicians, journalists, We've essentially taken the attitude, well, these are good things and uh, everybody will benefit from them. You know, just be patient and uh, don't sort of worry about it and uh, don't try to get involved in things that you don't want. <laughs> uh, you're, not, uh, you're not an expert. In. But, but on, at the same time, you know, uh, probably 5 million jobs over the last 20, uh, 20 years in the U.S. Uh, as a result of this process of automation, robots, trade have been lost in manufacturing, probably a couple of million in the U.K. So, and, uh, and, and we've really not taken any actions to retrain these people, reintegrate them into the labor force, and even worse, you know, in the U.S., uh, as opposed to, to to Scandinavia and to some degree in Germany, we also don't have the social safety net to provide these people with a decent living standards after they have been hit with this, you know, pretty dire hardship. So, so that has really created a whole segment of society that's discontented and that sees technology elites, you know, urban middle classes sort of thrive while they are themselves are falling behind and have rightly been. Uh 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Sort of brewing a huge degree of anger and discontent. And I think that's the sort of the one leg of this. And uh, But then there's a second leg, which is sort of an uglier leg, and I think it's the two coming together that's really creating this uh, sort of dangerous mix. And that second ugly leg is that at the same time, and this is sort of a gift of democracy in some sense, we've also been tearing down a lot of the hidden implicit inequities in society. You know, if you look at even as late as the 1980s or 1970s, in the U.S., in the U.K., there is a clear social hierarchy with white, middle-aged men at the top and minorities very much at the bottom, much more silent, much less uh, assertive, women, younger people. And that hierarchy has been sort of being torn down by the forces of democracy, by the forces of technology, by the forces of globalization. And now you have the double whammy. You have these people who are economically losing, and they're also, their sort of social existence, their sense of uh, sort of worth that has been defined by the social hierarchy. And it's an ugly social hierarchy. I'm not defending it, but it's what had defined their their sense Mm -hmm. of worth. That's also collapsed. So that really creates a hugely dangerous kind of uh, confluence of two factors that build this anger. And I think Donald Trump somehow, despite the fact that I don't think he's a very smart man, uh, he really sensed that. And even though he's neither poor nor, you know, uh, somebody who's particularly suffered from the social hierarchy's demise, he really sensed that and he really exploited that to a degree that, 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 was, that was really, you know, artful. So okay. we, I know, I know that the current is sort of hot here. So yeah. We're in the middle. So you, you go first. Then. I go first. Yeah, because Karen will uh, explain to both of us how <laughs> social democracy will save the world in the end. I think so. That's what no, she's doing. No, um, but I'm uh, on, on, more, more interested in the failure. And, and so I think the picture that you painted is so painfully <laughs> true, or. Or vivid. I hope that, I, I, that, that I would like to dwell I hope, on. I hope it's not true, but it is. <laughs> no, but the interesting part is, first of all, I thought in one of your papers you explained, I think it was a social mobility paper. So uh, you go back to Tocqueville and you, and you, you, you explain why there is a the connection between the poor and the rich. Why, why, and that 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 sort of you know, very clearly, I think, sort of resonates with with what's happening in this country at the moment. Or or. And, and it's very inexplicable about why why do people who are obviously sort of not profiting from the policies that are put forward why do they still support them? But but I think the most frustrating aspect for me at this moment, and I think Karen was sharing that is is as you say, the solution that's put forward this, the, the 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 candidate that that we all wanted. Well, I, I, not to say. I, 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 strongly, Sanders, of course. Yeah, I, of course. I, I would have voted for Clinton, but but Sanders was the more progressive candidate. Nobody but cares. So, <laughs> <laughs> but so, as you say, so so we're sleepwalking, like 
Sleep, sleepwalking yeah, is, is, is the phrase that, so that's the book that, yeah. uh, the Clark book about the First World War, by yeah. the way. So yeah. we're yeah. sleepwalking. Yeah. That's what we did. Yeah. And, and the only guy who comes up with and say, so, so, so the progressive answer is the reactionary answer. And that's the super frustrating point at the moment. So, so I'm kind of, so, so Clinton, as you say, didn't have the answers to those two fundamental questions. Yeah, I mean, I and don't that's think, so I don't frustrating. Think Trump, Trump has it either. No, no, but he has an answer for a lot of people. So that's the demand side. Well, I think, I think, uh, the, I, think the, I think what was really frustrating, I'm just, you know, guessing here, but I think what was really frustrating for people for the last 20 years wasn't that their problems weren't solved per se. I mean, that was, of course, is frustrating, but their problems weren't recognized. You know, look at Obama. I mean, I think it's as progressive a president as you can hope in the 21st century. And he did not even articulate these problems. You know, he sometimes talked about economic poverty, problems, right? But, but these yeah. problems yeah. of technology and yeah. globalization, yeah. destroying jobs, destroying communities. Uh, he did not articulate that, and he, of course, didn't articulate the social hierarchy point. Obviously, obviously not. And then I'm not. I think it's a good thing that we don't articulate the social hierarchy point, but we still have to recognize uh, the, the presence. So, so it was. These were like the, the the forgotten masses in some sense. I think that's how they felt. And it's not. I don't know. Perhaps they think that Trump has the answers, but I think the fact that he brought a, a rhetoric that elevates those concerns was was quite important. So, um, you tell us. No, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to ask a question about a paper that you wrote. Um, why it's called something Scandinavians? Yes. Why should we all be Scandinavians? Mm -hmm. And you discuss the balance between social safety yes. net and the yeah. the need for innovation mm -hmm. to create growth uh, that then will be possible mm -hmm. to redistribute in the best of all worlds. Yeah. And the, ar your, the argument you're making is that, w no, we cannot all be Scandinavians mm -hmm. because if we have those social security nets, then... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what I would like to clarify that, I think that paper is, is you know, it's because it's written, uh, it was sort of uh, for a more academic audience, it didn't really do the right clarification. I think one has to distinguish between social safety net at the bottom and sort of redistribution at the top. And I was really talking about the redistribution at the top. Right. I think that that argument really does not speak to the social safety net at the bottom. And I think we can all be Scandinavians when it comes to the social safety net at the bottom. Okay. And I think there so is this, really is the <laughs> this is the compromise. It's the good news. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, but I think what I, what I don't believe is that we can all <clears throat> limit inequality at the top. Uh, while at the same time also hope to have, you know, very strongly entrepreneurial cultures and uh, Silicon Valleys and Route 128s and so on right. and so forth. And I think that's where the trade-off is. And I think you can do that when you're a small country because, uh, you know, you're benefiting from the world technologies. But but I think the problem for the U.S. is much harder. So that's why I think the U.S. really, I mean, and, and, and that paper was written in some sense as a reaction to the sort of the view that, well, we can all sort of uh, just increase taxes on the top 1% top one and then sure. solve everything. No, I yeah. think the U.S. has a much more fundamental problem. The U.S. needs to increase taxes on the middle classes, and that's the thing that nobody is willing to say in the United States because it's a sure way of losing it 
election, but U.S. needs greater, you know, you can, you, of course you can do savings, there are lots of inefficiencies, but, but you're going to go only so far with savings, and you really need to increase taxes on the middle classes. That's the only way that the U.S. can have a modern social safety net, which it sorely needs, and, and the, 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 the view that you can just do that by taxing, uh, you know, a few, few millionaires is just like a pipe dream. So, just to follow up, maybe not on that question, but on something you said before, and kind of this moment, um, also because we've been um, taking a lot of classes this year with uh, political economists and kind of trying to follow the post-election debate, and it seems to me that, that there is this moment of awake- awakening where a lot of economists and political economists are saying, yes, we did not take into account the negative effects for many people of um, mm-hmm. technological disruption and of global trade, and we should have done that. Mm-hmm. We should have been w- more aware of that. But so the thing I, I'm wondering about is even if you if you do that, even if you get better at thinking about the people who are negatively affected and create social security net, you still have the issue of the collapse of identities, the collapse yes. of institutions in terms of how you feel, your pl- where your place Yes. is in society yes. and what's... You and that's a zero-sum game. You're not going to be able to get rid of yeah. that. But you can manage that. I think it's the confluence of the economic collapse right. and the social identity collapse. That's, you know, that that social hierarchical process with some, uh, you know, different, uh, at a different pace, but it's been going on for the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. So, so, and that always creates some reactionary forces and sometimes they explode. But, but I think... Uh, but I think that can be managed yeah. with the right institutions, with the right uh, political party structures, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So it's the, it's really the two of them coming together that really created the, the major problem. Because even in my country, which is uh, you know progressive and prosperous mm-hmm. and has uh, great social security net in, in relative to other countries, we still have uh, the third biggest party in parliament is. Yeah. you know, a right-wing populist yes. party, and they're now surging in the polls, yes. even though, yes. you know, uh, if, you look at, if you look at Sweden from, from from the U.S., it seems to be, you know, you have all, all, the, and, and all these think, things think, in place. Think, and I think, you know, that's where, I mean, I, you know, I don't know whether it's your view or Georg is caricaturizing your view, so I do agree with <laughs> your car- caricaturizing <laughs> view that social democracy is the solution. But I probably disagree that social democracy is easy. Yeah. And I think, again, there, Swedes have had it easy because it's such a homogeneous society. Yes. And I think, sure. you know, with the increase in immigration, you're really going to see the fault lines of social democracy mm. because even in an, as an enlightened country as Sweden, mm-hmm. as, you know, some of the taxes start paying for people who uh, the taxpayers are not identifying with, then you're going to see all the strains that have really been so difficult to manage in the United States. Mm-hmm. The United States has is not only the world's technology leader, which makes it really very difficult. But it's one of the most heterogeneous countries in the world. Yeah. And it's one of the most rapidly changing countries. And that, that it's very difficult to have social democracy in a country like that. But I agree mm. with the view that the only way I see for the future of the United States as remaining a largely inclusive society is to become more social democratic. Mm. But it's, it's very important that it really becomes social democratic and not socialist. And I think that's where I worried about Bernie Sanders, for mm-hmm. example, that, that Bernie Sanders, you know, had many parts of his plan that were so inconsistent that 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 made me think, you know, is he a 
really a social democrat, but or is he going to be something like a, the Podemos in Spain? Mm. So, as I'm curious about what you talked before, sort of how, how to tackle inequality. Mm -hmm. You said tax the middle class, mm -hmm. and sort of, I don't know, that, that, that doesn't seem to tackle the problem of the super rich or, and, and, and the oligarchy problem, but, but on a more fundamental level... Oh, no, no, level, I mean, you of course so have to tax the middle, the, the super rich yeah, also, yeah, but, 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 still, but so it's not going to... But the fundamental question is, still remains, I, I guess, first of all, um, social democracy never tackles no. sort of the question of redistribution of wealth. That's basically the, the uh, reason they exist, um, to, to keep more or less power balances in place on the one hand, and the other uh, question would be sort of um, so that's one question more for Karen. So how, 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 when, when, I can or, ask my own or, questions. Or, or how, <laughs> how, why is that socialist? So sort of all of a sudden, why is that a danger? So it isn't that sort of what you say is necessary? So why, why would, would you be sort of wary of wary of of redistribution? The other question is how to tackle something that you described in, 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 in the interview now, but but also in your papers. So how do you how do you re reconcile sort of the, the huge productivity gains? With no gains in jobs, so so what's what's the the, the well, so uh, no, no, those are two very different questions. So uh, let me try to sort of answer uh, the two separately. The first one is, of course, the the uh, the boundary is between uh, the, the the area between socialism and social democracy is a gray zone. But I take it that the the sort of the defining characteristic of social democracy for me is that a uh, complete acceptance of the market mechanism for allocating resources supported by educational redistribution and regulation, regulatory, uh, regulatory institutions to make that process uh, fairer, less inefficient, less distortionary, plus the sort of redistribution system in order to sort of make that, uh, make that access to the market Uh, sort of more more acceptable, and whereas I think the the sort of the defining sort of characteristics of socialism in some sense is the to to a large extent uh, not a complete acceptance of of the market processes, so much greater degree of the state or bureaucrats or or others making decisions about how to allocate resources, and 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 I think uh, if you sort of uh, look at Bernie Sanders's program and the economists, for example, who were uh, around him, you would really not be comfortable that this is a social democratic program. You know, that's why I didn't support him at the time. In, in hindsight, perhaps that was a mistake, uh, <laughs> but but uh, but but that was that was my concern. Now on the on the question of you know which is sort of linked, which is where we're going, you know, productivity and employment and jobs. Well, I guess the difficulty is. And this is now going to get more into the economics of it. Is that we actually have productivity gains, but they're not huge either. So there's something that doesn't quite add up here. Mm. Also, that we are seeing all these amazing widgets. We're seeing this transformative globalization process. But at the end of the day, if you look at the productivity growth rates of the U.S. economy over the last 20 years. They're nowhere comparable to what the U.S. economy or France or Sweden experienced in the 50s, 60s. So, so in some sense, if that productivity growth was higher, 
there would be more jobs created because people would be get richer, they would want more services, they would want more uh, more goods of, 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 of others. So, so we have this automation going on, it's displacing workers, it's increasing productivity, but it's not such an amazing process that it's also lifting all boats at the same time. So, so I think there are several reasons for that. Uh, one of them is, is 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 again related to the to the to the social safety net or broadly construed social safety net. We just don't have a workforce with the right sorts of skills in the United States and in much of the rest of the world to be able to work with these new technologies and to sort of uh, thrive in the presence of these new technologies. So that's really holding us back. And making, maybe make inventions themselves. Make inventions themselves, absolutely. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's very important. But we have the inventions coming up. It's not, the problem isn't, you know, uh, if you look at robotics, I mean, you have just amazing innovations. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, software, communication technologies, new services. We have amazing innovations. It's just more, it's like the next layer. It's the workers who are supposed to be working with them in manufacturing and services. Uh, it's these, these, these workers that, that are sort of lacking and they're also, uh, they're also not being able to, to, to relocate once they lose their jobs. And that's all related to this educational system. And the educational system in the United States is failing because we're just starving it of resources. Mm. Uh, and that's related to this broader social safety net issue. It's not just resources overall, by the way. I mean, elite schools get a lot of resources in the U.S. It's it's the sort of the bottom 50% of the students in mm. the sort of public schools than in poorer neighborhoods that are that are uh, lower income neighborhoods that are that are really being uh, badly served by the system. So, but that's the uh, recipe for authoritarian. Rule, right? So you say in, in, well, in it's your a papers it's a that, that for you need modernization and growth right. for inclusive institutions, meaning yeah. democracy, to thrive. Yeah, so if you don't have yeah, growth, it's a, it's a, then what? So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a recipe. But don't you have to change then the equation? If you want to have democracy, I mean, you're, the, it could, the growth is your field. But so if, if absolutely. You, if from the other side, if, absolutely. if democracy to, is, right. so just take out growth and put something else in. Mm, that is not that easy. But let, me, easy. Let, me, let me let me say one other thing, though. It's not. I want to just underline one thing. That's actually to me. That's the hard, one of the hardest challenges. Also, all of these are a. Uh, they they are not necessarily paving the way to right wing populism. They could be paving the way to any kind of outside movement that's going to repudiate the system. So, in some sense, I see the forces that you know fuel Podemos in Spain not entirely different from the forces that have fueled the Tea Party or Trump in the United States. You know, if you look at, they are all complaining about uh globalization bankers unfair rules the common man not getting his due jobs but just to make the point around. one is racist the other isn't uh, one is more or less democratic the other is authoritarian just because that's an ongoing argument also with karen and i i'm not sure how productive that is i i, I think you from your, where you're coming from it's meant to be productive <laughs> But, but it's also kind of well. I, I, of course, sure. I find I find the nativism and the racism of the Trump movement uh, much more nauseous. But you find Podemos equally troubling, you would say, or, or is there a, a well? I mean, I, first of all, change? I'm saying they come from the same place. Yeah, and 
they are both reactions to the to the system, and neither of them have workable solutions. And so, whether one is more dangerous than the neither other, does, I think neither does the center. It seems neither does the center. That's true. To shake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it isn't that. But there's a difference, right? It isn't that the center is totally devoid of ideas. I mean, I think there is some of that. But it's more that the center doesn't have the way of presenting these solutions in an acceptable manner. So I think, again, I disagree on with Obama on many things, but several parts of Obama's economic policies, if they could have been implemented, would have helped in some of these things. So and another Democratic president, hopefully, when they come to power in three and a half years' time, will probably be more aware of some of these problems. But will they be able to get uh, to get these uh, these policies passed? And that's again related to the middle being squeezed from the left and the right. And uh, and 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 that's why I think the I'm, I'm putting the Podemos and, uh, and and Trump and the Brexit and Theresa May all as part of. You know, the existing system doesn't work. Some more uh, radical solutions category. This is so interesting because I think this goes to a discussion that I'm uh, partly having with myself and also with Georg this whole year about, and that I just hear the echoes in in, in things that people kind of in the center left is are saying, and and the my question is or what I'm conflicted about is. Essentially, did the center left have the right answer? Or, not, no, not, I mean, certainly but, not. Because the right I hear you kind of going back and forth on, right. on this. Am. You're saying, you know, uh, the populist doesn't have the right answer if they had just followed the Obama policies because they were actually pretty good yes. compared to everything else. And yes, they were pretty good compared right. to everything right. else. But at the same time, we have to have a discussion now sure. about the fact that they were not Absolutely. good enough. So I think actually, so, I think that's very important. So that's where I'm starting. I 100% agree with you, and I, I see that. My, my position is a little sort of squeezed in between. So we did not do the right thing. We did not recognize the problems in right. the 2000s. But again, I'm saying center-left. But I mean, I don't even want to call it center-left. You know, in Germany, it's, you know, Mer- Merkel's party is, is, is very much like a social democrat party at this point. No. Yeah. I no. Th- uh, no. What? No. Touché. Uh, no. Touché. <laughs> Germany's economic policies are destructive for Europe. And, uh, oh, for Europe, yes. yes. For Europe, that's yes, for yes, Europe. Yes, yes, I live for, rest, Europe, yeah. for, the, for, for Germany, they're fine. No. <laughs> uh, it's interior social democracy no, and exterior uh, so, uh, submission. Uh, I like Merkel's liberal, you know, standing up for liberal values, but you can't give her a blank check on her uh, economic policies uh, just because of that. Uh, no. But, okay. Uh, center, center, center policies, let's say. That... I think that's the only hope of developing workable solutions to these formidable challenges. And what I'm saying is that even though they were asleep at the wheel, uh, even though they were sleepwalking, whatever they were doing at the time were even with all of those shortcomings were still better than any alternatives that have been articulated by, you know, 
put them also or Syriza or you know Syriza now has become more of an establishment party, but at the early stages of Syriza, uh, Trump or Brexit or Marine Le Pen. So so that again, so we really have to challenge the center. We have yeah. to push the center even further, but the center is the only game in town at this point. So we're, we're sort of uh, circling back to the beginning and, and uh, also kind of towards the end. Um, I'd, I'd like to... Um, we're out of time. We're running out of time, <laughs> but we still have uh, a few minutes. Then. Um, so so my question is, again, sort of to the, the role of the economist in, 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 this, in this field or, or, the, or the public intellectual. So you say basically Obama or the, the, the left, the progressive side, um, and that's sort of the lesson of, of, of the selection. Um, let go of basic uh, economic arguments. They, they, they changed the field and, and were more interested in, in identity or, or, in, or, in, or they, 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 let, go, they let go of economic arguments. So, right. um, yeah, there's, what, an argument, there's an argument which has been popular. Uh, I shouldn't have said that then. Yeah, uh, but, but I want to just uh, comment on it when in the U.S., which has been oh, you know, the Democratic Party abandoned the working classes and started, uh, you know, talking about liberal values. And I think that's totally wrong. I mean, of course, the Democratic Party had to do that. Yeah. That's its base, and that's the progress on which we depend. Yeah, and that's, you know, you it's not a defend. trade-off, totally. Yeah, sure. it's, it's not, not a trade-off. It's not one or the it's other. I think trade-off. that's a very right. important point yeah. to say. So that's the, the argument after the election. No, we should we gay rights and, and Yeah, we should abandon we should those. Abandon we should and just, and, yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's no. not one or the other. But but as you say, Obama really didn't tack the question. that had to do with the economists. That, that were part of his team. So how can you have a progressive um, economic agenda if yes. so if you pay seven hundred billion to the banks and you have Larry Summers on your side? Um, so what's the what's the failure of the of your your profession in that sense of to be engaging in in the, not only in the political arena but having sort of just just taking or just trying to figure out the right ways? Um, well, I mean, I think to some degree the economics profession has been complacent that we did not sort of tackle those major social issues in the way that we needed to tackle. But also, I think uh, our models, our conceptual frameworks were not up to the task. You know, we started with very simple models of trade that didn't really fully realize the job sort of uh, dislocations that they created. We had models of technological change that didn't fully uh, come to grips with how automation and related processes can mean huge job losses. Uh, that's very much working progress, uh, you know. But but I think the, the economics, perhaps for good reasons, the conservative. Uh, not economically right wing, but conservative profession. So, if you ask me, you know, give advice to a politician, and I have my own model, and I have, you know, work that has come from 35 years ago. I will normally go to the work that have come from 35 years ago, not not my new model. But that's where we were at a time where the models that came, the knowledge that came from 35 years ago, not up to the task. And that's where our conservatism didn't really serve us very well. So we kept saying, oh, trade is going to be good. Oh, technology is good. But we did not really come to grips with the uh, same thing on the financial crisis. You know, we didn't, uh, you know, there are plenty of people who wrote down works that said, oh, you know, information asymmetries and, and, and arbitrage opportunities can be bad. But, but when it came to uh, giving advice about you know, regulating hedge funds, regulating uh, mortgage-backed securities, etc. That didn't sort of uh, make it into the headlines of the economic policy making. So, 
so I think I think that that sort of says in the future we have to be more on the ball on these topics also. But it's just generally for, and that's why there is this distrust of elites. It's true for all experts, journalists included. You know, we were we were all sort of somewhat complacent about these issues, okay. even though they were going on under our noses. Yeah, we're taking um, you, you're kicking the no ball. You're self- kicking the ball back to us. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm that's sharing. <laughs> I'm sharing the blame. <laughs> but no fair reason enough, for self-hate. I think. No, 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 absolutely no. not. Yeah. But again, exactly. This is the only this is the only game in town if we're going to try to solve these things. And 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 I think especially for journalism and especially for experts. I mean, I think in these polarized times, it's so important to be able to uh, practice ethical. Uh, ethically, your profession, you know, provide advice, provide information in an ethical manner. I think that's just it's a more and more difficult things because there are going to be more and more demands for charlatans to 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 sort of uh, say things that are going to help one group or another. I think that's an appropriate place Point. to end this conversation. Thank, Thank you. you so Thanks much for talking. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.